Nice cello, Christopher. <laughs> Excuse <laughs> me? Strange comment. Did I, did I just make a noise? At least it wasn't a tuba. Uh, or a trombone. Mm. Uh, hey folks, welcome to the Unsung Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Mark Fraser, and I am joined by... Two other hosts. Two other hosts. What are you called? What's your names? Uh, well, that guy in the plaid shirt, that is Christopher. Hi, Christopher. Hi. Uh, I can't actually see what you're wearing. You're just neck up today. Oh, vest. Ah, oh, well, no surprises there then. <laughs> That's uh, Pitts McGee. It's because uh, the, the Scottish summer just keeps giving. Yeah, the hairiest pits in Glasgow. <laughs> yeah, David Weaver. Um, so... Yes, welcome, welcome, and welcome again. Uh, that's someone else's gimmick. I think I've just stolen there. Is it Bruce Forsyth? Possibly, yeah. <laughs> Is it Michael Barrymore? You do. You have a lot in common beyond just catchphrases. <laughs> gimmick, gimmick infringement. <laughs> pools. Never, <laughs> never accept an invitation to Mark's pool. Yeah, yeah all of it, all of it. Um, yes. Yeah, so I had something I was going to say, and it just went in my head. It's something to do with running a podcast because yeah, it's probably important. Uh, I so. Let me let me sell that again. Welcome to the Song Podcast. Uh, we absolutely are, not getting cut. We are absolutely fucking, not getting cut. People just, need uh, to know what they're doing. Mine's went so blank here. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, I, I've remembered it, now. It, I've remembered now. If I cut all this stuff out, then it's false advertising, right? They deserve to know the level of competency that is behind this. The only stuff that is gets cut is when I say controversial. Exactly. Things. The, the, you guys are like Chris. We're not putting that out. It's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we are remote once again uh, due to. Uh, I'm awaiting a PCR test result, um, so we plan to be in person. We are not in person. Well, that happened last week as well, didn't it? It was me last time. Yeah, uh-huh. For so fuck's sake. When is my time going to come? Next week, potentially. I think so. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm, I'm confident. I, I really don't think I've had it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, most people I know are like, I'm, I'm pretty sure I had it back in 2016, by the way. I had this really bad cold when I came back for Redden, and I'm pretty sure, if you think about it, that was probably the start of covid Covid sixteen, sick of hearing that. By the way, honestly, no, you didn't. You didn't. Yeah, but yeah. And speaking of Covid, my big brother's got it, which Did fucking you get sucks. It from Reading? No, he got it from work because he works in Asda, right? <laughs> oh, and uh, my my mum had flown that day. The day that he, he tested positive, my mum had flown to London in order to get a flight to Copenhagen to see my wee sister for the first time and to see my niece for the first time ever. And she had to come back home because she had oh, COVID. Shit. Absolute fucking bummer. Did, your mum's never seen your sister? Was she just like <laughs> taking <laughs> away? My, her niece, my niece, or her? I guess her granddaughter. Yeah. Have you said you, you said your sister? No, I said she never. She'd never seen her niece before. Nah. <laughs> yeah, but uh, no, I'm pretty sure you did say your sister for the first time. But well, in Denmark at least she's never been in Denmark to see her. So well, there you that, go. Yeah. <laughs> I've never seen my. I've never seen anybody in Denmark, ever. Yeah, same. Do you have any fans in Denmark? Have ever made the charts there? Yeah, a few times. We've actually been. We've actually keep, we've returned to the the British chart again. We Arctic monkeys. I don't know why this keeps happening. <laughs> <laughs> I hate that place. We're such shameless panderers as well. Eh? We knew that was going to happen. Dave even said the phrase "British institution" and. In both parts of that show, national treasure, national, national treasure, treasure right. yeah. If you would like us to remain a national treasure, <laughs> then uh, we've got a Patreon and also a tip jar. So look at that for a segue. Almost as good as one of Dave's. That was professional, <laughs> based on a lot of assumptions. Yeah. If you go to unsungpod.net forward slash donate, you can check out our Patreon and our tip jar if you want to do a one-off 
uh, donation. We have a lot of cool things. If you're feeling flush, we'll give you a free T-shirt. Uh, if you're feeling super flush, we'll give you a free episode on the album of your choosing um, at one day, eventually. Um, sorry, Craig, that I Me record is coming. <laughs> hey, again, just in the interest of not false advertising, if you give us a regular and substantial amount of money, the T-shirt isn't technically free. <laughs> I suppose uh, it's free for us. <laughs> 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 so before Mark gets us in any more legal hot water, this week is Dave's week. Hi, yeah, and it's um, yeah, it's something that I've wanted to do for a while. Uh, I thought doing doing it after the Arctic Monkeys was probably the right time because I don't know why. Just felt like we needed a little cleanse. Um, uh, yeah, but we're doing so we're doing Arthur Russell. And I guess this is the first one Right, wait, first of all I think I've read this word so many times But is it posthumous? What? Posthumous 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 Posthumous, it's posthumous Of course it's posthumous I keep thinking of Like it can't be posthumous That's like the main course (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you're regularly posthumous. Yeah, so this is the first uh, posthumous record I think we've done. Certainly posthumous. Oh no, no, we did. It's donuts, not the first posthumous. We did donuts. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, uh, unless Eric Satie's very fucking old as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's no, no, no. But he, he oh yeah, yeah, fair play. He did, but but this Eric Satie did perform any records. <laughs> <to our knowledge. laughs> um, but yeah, the record I've gone for is "Calling Out of Context," and. It was put together twelve years after Arthur Russell's death. Yes, uh-huh. I can, can I just make, make clear, just for foreign audiences, that's calling as in like shouting out of context, not calling as in a guy that works in your office <laughs> called Colin, <laughs> Colin out of context, which sounds like a low budget sort of American sitcom that got one series <laughs> and then got cancelled. Um, yeah, it's just Colin Firth in weirder and weirder situations, like at a, at a death metal show. Uh, uh, I don't know An abattoir <laughs> In the film The King's Men Yep So it's basically A compilation album I guess Which maybe seems weird Because When we talk about The Concept of an album We talk about The artist choosing it And the track listing And it, how it's like A specific piece of work But I guess I mean we'll we'll talk about him In depth But a big part of The reason why This is the record I'm choosing Is because of the way Arthur Russell worked the fact that he was, yeah, when he died in 1992, nobody really knew who he was. He was a sort of overlooked figure. Uh, his legacy has been built on the back of tunes and, and songs and demos that were unreleased uh, and then have since been released over the last 20 years. I, Yeah, so I, I guess he's still a cult figure. Over the last 15 years, recognition has definitely grown, but I'd say most f- folks still haven't heard of him. Uh, I'm not going to pretend that I'm a proper Arthur Russell expert. There are people that are fucking really, really into Arthur Russell. I would also highly recommend the documentary A Wild Combination, which came out in 2008, I believe. Um, You can buy that for like 10 quid from Vimeo, or if you want to support Bezos, you can actually just buy it for a pound off Amazon. And that's a, it's a great documentary. It talks to his parents and his uh, his partner and loads of folk that he used to go to college with and, and stuff like that. 
but yeah, I guess I've only recently got into him in the last three or four years. His back catalogue is chaotic because it's all been put together after his death, mostly. He was prolific in recording and writing and producing and doing stuff, but he was not prolific in releasing at all. Mm. Um, and I just think, yeah, he's a really, really interesting guy. So, I mean, I can I can give you the basics, but did, had either of you heard much of Arthur Russell before? Never. Never heard Never. of him before in my life, no. Ideal. Mm, I... No, I, you know, it's a name that I'm like, oh yeah, it's, I, I think I've heard this before. I wasn't quite sure where to place it chronologically. Yeah, it, It's ended up landing roughly where I thought, but I think I was a little bit thrown by the fact that so many significant releases came out posthumously Yeah, uh, after, after he'd finished his hummus. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, so I, I was a wee bit unsure about it. And I think even just on a cursory glances, I realised it was a domain of music that I don't really know a lot about. Um, I think it's wise to sort of preempt it by saying we're definitely not experts because he strikes me as one of those characters that has a bit of the kind of uh, Nick Hornby to it, you know, like a bit of this sort of like obsessive vinyl collector. Like I think this is, it sounds very pejorative, but middle age music. I think the people that are really into this are getting to an age now where they're quite obsessive about back catalogues, and uh, there's yeah, there's like a subset of the community and people that frequent record shops and these kind of things that are probably really big fans of his uh we hasn't he hasn't really enjoyed a lot of crossover appeal into the mainstream but uh i mean sir, if you've spent a lot of time at the subway you've probably heard them a, a lot mm-hmm. people that go to kind of cool electronic clubs where you get slightly edgier more unconventional djs and things like that yeah they're probably very au fait with the stuff is done it, it, it had vague recognition value to me, but I, I couldn't have told you a single thing about the, the dude until we actually did the show. Yep. All right, well, the basics. He was born in Iowa in a little place called Oskaloosa. Great name. Uh, in 1951. On May the 21st, which is going to be very significant later on for me. Oh, yes, okay. Um, his dad was a formal naval officer who ended up actually being the mayor of Oskaloosa. Um, and as a kid, have you, either of you been to Iowa? It's basically just cornfields, you know, forever. Never. Did you go on your slip-lop pilgrimage, yeah? Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, so he, st- he studied uh, cello and piano, composed his own music. He uh, was quite an introverted guy. Um, also, acne-scarred face. He suffered from severe acne, which he, he sort of... Yeah, that became a bit of part of his personality and he was, you know, sort of unsure of himself and, and stuff like that. Sort of reminiscent of uh, Elliot Smith. As yeah, well, yeah, yeah absolutely. And like, yeah, he seemed like a sort of introverted but really interesting guy. His parents were sort of, you know, just lovely middle-class American folk who were happy to let him try things and stuff like that. I, th- I think I think they remember uh, finding weed uh, when he was 16 or something and they were, oh, okay, let's see how that goes. Chris? Uh, yeah, sorry. I just think it's interesting that, you know, his dad was ex-Navy. Yeah. And yet his, his parents seemed really su- supportive of his artistic ambitions. Yeah, that, that, That's pretty cool because, mm. yeah. you know, you, you read so many kind of American Beauty-esque guy next door horror stories of, you know, military families deterring their creative uh, children from those kind of like uh, pursuits and you know he, they seem very supportive because he I mean he, he went to art school he, stu- he studied art after high school as well in various ways he studied was it Native American 
composition yeah. and then Western composition before he even ended up going to that Manhattan School of Music. So I mean, and obviously, either as you say, he already studied cello and piano. So they they were very supportive. If you watch the documentary, his parents are like big parts of it, and they just seem like lovely old people. Um, yeah. now, but he did. He ended up. He he ran away. I think it was after his dad got a bit angry about the weed and he ran away to San Francisco, ended up joining like a mad... Uh, Buddhist, Buddhist commune, yeah. Yeah, commune for a while. You know, it's a significant one because uh, Buddhism really took off in California in a big way from the 60s into the 70s. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm sure we all associate California with that. This was 68, 69, sort of summer of love sort of vibe, so... But even into like the modern era with like Courtney Love and Keanu Reeves and all those kind of celebrities that sort of dabble in Buddhism, that sort of like yoga and sushi kind of branch of very middle class, upper middle class Californian hipster Buddhism. Like this came from this guy Neville G. Pemchikin Warwick. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he was like a Buddhist leader who kind of modernised and popularised this kind of American bourgeois interpretation of it. Uh, he's also the guy that apparently uh, popularised the firewalking. Oh that's really? Formative thing as well. Uh, yeah. Interesting. That's who. That's who he moved to San Francisco and ended up uh, associated with. He actually seemed to carry that through his life as well. You know, like one of the things that comes across quite often in the documentary is that 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 sort of place of try to keep focused and you know keep at peace for yourself is something that seemed to influence him mm-hmm. throughout his entire yeah. career. You know. Yeah, absolutely. And also a sort of inquisitiveness. He wasn't necessarily spiritual, but he was like. He questioned everything, I guess. Um, So he ended up, when he was 22 or 23, he moved to New York to study electronic music sort of stuff at the Manhattan School of Music. Um, and also linguistics as well, and apparently he he clashed with Char- Charles Vorinen, who was a Pulitzer Prize winning composer and instructor. Th- this was a sort of minimalist time when you know things like that were building in New York, and this guy uh, Charles Vorinen hated what Arthur Russell was doing. Who actually was all, who was born Charles Arthur Russell? Should mention that, but goes by Arthur Russell. Uh, he said that it was the most unattractive thing I've ever heard. Um, so Russell quit, fucked off, but he stayed in New York. And I mean, it just sounds like an absolutely mad time, but we kind of talked it with uh, ESG, um, but New York, like late 70s, well, mid 70s into the early 80s, was just absolutely booming with the avant-garde, with experimental music, with uh, minimalism, with post-punk, post-punk, like Warhol and the Velvet Underground and Lou Reed and all that stuff that had branched off from that and people like yeah. Lydia Lynch and stuff weren't far off and yeah there was a lot of like really crazy experimental stuff and soundscapes and minimalism and obviously crowd music in Germany had got really Aye. big just prior and so they were taking a lot from that which I think is relevant later on in this. Yeah so at this point Russell is a composer and he's also a performer on cello but he's doing really experimental stuff um, you know fucking about with you know, delay and echo and distortion, and he's also doing poetry and spoken word and and interest in lyricism over the top. Hey, 
he's doing folk music, but then he's like really fucking up the you know production and stuff like that. And he ends up being musical director of The Kitchen, which was like, I guess it's like Cafe Auto would be in London now. It's like a experimental music space. And throughout his tenure uh, at The Kitchen, he, which I think lasted about a year, he like really expanded what they would take in and um, the sort of music and the sort of performers that they'd look at. I think they were quite a closed, artsy, narrow-minded sort of view of what music should be there serious music as you know minimalist stuff and he started taking in um uh proto-punk bands and pop bands and and you know uh so yeah he he was already pushing boundaries and saying um, he doesn't want to be stuck within one genre or you know stuck within one movement even though he's like right in the heart of this um and then for the next four or five years, he's working as a performer, uh, um, musician, like he performs on some Talking Heads stuff. Meets David Byrne, he... Um, has a brief dalliance with Allen Ginsberg. In fact, uh, mm. um, he didn't come out as gay until the early eighties, but it, it appeared that they had a wee relationship. He yeah, also talks, you know, Allen Ginsberg talks about that, doesn't he, in documentary? But mm-hmm. he actually he always found him very alluring as a person. You know, he actually I think pretty much said it. Almost said he loved him more or less. You know, and he, yeah. he speak and in, in the documentary, there's uh, I think there's footage of Allen Ginsberg talking at I think what I believe is maybe his. Uh, like after he's died, after he died at Memorial or whatever, and it's just like such a lovely, like you see, just the things he says about him are just so lovely. Yeah, I totally. His leisure hours are spent in a way that mystifies his younger years. Thinking hard, he has no say. So yeah, and it, I, I mean, other people that he's working with are, you know, Philip Glass, John Cage. They're also living in this flat, which ended up having fucking Pulitzer Prize winners and Nobel Prize winners and all this like ridiculous amount of artists just in about this you know six-story flat somewhere in Upper Manhattan. Um, so yeah, you're just like in that scene, being creative all the time, and so many of his peers were looking at him as like this quite weird, quiet guy, but who was driven pushing boundaries and uh, yeah I guess then late 70s he discovers disco starts going to nightclubs he's going to these places that are like you know in warehouses squats stuff like that he's absolutely loving it gets into sort of tribal rhythms afrobeat stuff like that Um, but it appears he used to basically just sit at the side and see how the music went and what bits got people to dance what bits put people off and just seemed to be, you know, like, learning from it. He he definitely wasn't a dancer, but he was intrigued as to what made people dance. He's, um, I think it's interesting that first encounter with uh, disco, that it's become kind of quite apocryphal, but 
what's his name, a guy called Nick Ciano, who was the, the boss of a place called Gallery, which is a really significant parts, it was in Soho at the time it was a really significant place, a bit like CBGB's with the punk movement Yeah. Um, and Ciano had said that that whole story about him just immediately falling in love at the first time wasn't really true it's like he'd, he'd originally started going to disco events with his boyfriend at the time a guy called Louis Aquiline um, and he kind of attended them with Louis and then Ciano says he started to see him coming on his own even without Louis and then he more and more started to fit into the scene he would like get up and dance he talks uh, he's, he's commented about how he was just the whitest dancer going yeah but uh, yeah he, he kind of nervously entered that scene um, rather than this kind of like overnight thing that I think has sort of passed into common lore yeah but he did start to you know he started to write songs for that because uh, the fact that Lola Blank who eventually was one of the vocal on that song Go Bang which was like a mm-hmm. huge club hit at the time she couldn't believe that it was a white boy that wrote that <laughs> Called him the funkiest white man alive. Yeah, yeah. Aye, totally. So he had it, even though he couldn't fucking dance for shit. Mm-hmm. When he started writing, he knew exactly what to do. Um, so yeah, he started releasing stuff that was like very minimalist, rhythmic disco s- stuff um, under different mon- uh, monikers as well. There was Dinosaur L, Loose Joints, uh, a couple of others. Can I just say, see, see for the pseudonyms, there's a really good part, part I'm going to re- reference the documentary quite a lot here, sorry, but there's a really good part where somebody, I can't remember who it was, says that it just kind of spoke to different facets of his personality, you yeah. know, different characters that he could try on. Yeah, it was like a fragmentation of his personality and his creative output, and he's quite happy to just be like, yeah, I'm going to try this with that name, this with that name. Yeah. I'm quite happy to be anonymous, personally. Which makes sense mm-hmm. when you think about all the stuff that remains unreleased, you know, that this year plethora of of music that he still has hanging around. Well, I, th- you know? I think that's something worth talking about is that I guess I'll cover his creative output a little bit, not that there's a, a whole lot, but we can kind of discuss what it is to decide what you want to be released and how you want to, I don't know, brand it I guess, how, mm-hmm. how you personally feel tied to it because there are so many facets to his personality uh, and his creative output. Um, yeah, he he did. He released a few big singles in the in the late seventies, early eighties disco scene. Yeah, one of them was is it Kiss Me Again? That's that was funded by Gallery. Yeah, the, the, the place that we mentioned. That was like seventy seven. That came out. And that had you talked about David Byrne. That he was one of a number of people that contributed to that. That was under the Dinosaur L title. Mm-hmm. And I saw that, that, I mean, that shifted like 200,000 copies, which is an underground single, which is, you know, astonishing by these days' standards. Yeah. Um, but the big complaint was that actually, at the time, they couldn't get proper record label push behind that yeah. single to maybe propel it into the mainstream. Otherwise, it could have been an even more famous song than it, than it became on the underground over there. So I think then over the next 10 years you, you see the dichotomy uh, in his personality because he's, he's pushing the envelope and he's creating really interesting music that has possible sort of commercial viability but he also seems quite averse to actually being successful and I mean it's in the documentary He's conflicted about it 
Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. He's he's really conflicted, and he's also. I mean, he seems to be one of these creative people who are uh, not very well <laughs> organized mm-hmm. and difficult to pin down, and uh, can't keep schedules, couldn't take direction. Um, he's obviously driven by his sort of creative vision. Like in eighty two or eighty three, he joined the band The Necessaries, um, and one of his good friends talks about that and basically says it was a disaster. Like you know, he's this guy that's incredibly musically creative, but he wants to come in and change it and and direct it down his route, and yeah, just a sort of unmitigated disaster to work with. Yeah, have you heard? Uh, have you guys heard the Event Horizon The Necessaries record? No, it's that it's a proper it's a power pop record. That's exactly what it is. It's, it's not at all you, mm-hmm. I mean, Arthur Russell, isn't what you imagine whenever you say the name and say funk and disco and cello. Whatever you're imagining, folks, it's definitely not, it's definitely not what you fucking think it is. Um, and necessary, when I heard the Necessaries record, I was like, holy shit, this is not at all what I was expecting, given I'd seen documentary and, you know, listened mm-hmm. to his music. There's a song on it called More Real, which is just incredible, man. It's really hooky. It's like, and yeah. he sings on it. I, I was like, oh fuck, the first thing he'd released was uh, that Dinosaur L compilation, right? The 2424 music, and it's like all disco songs. Yeah. But actually, you hear Event Horizon, which came out the same year, and it is a completely different artist. It's staggering, man. Really interesting. Uh, Mark, just you got any Prince comparisons you want to get out of your system before <laughs> we go too far? <laughs> last last week you left it until, I mean, honestly, it was like the last two minutes. I thought I'd, we were getting through I it. mean, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of funk through all of his things, right? But I, <laughs> I don't hear a direct Prince comparison. You'll be Very you'll good. be thankful to know. More James Brownie, in my opinion, and some of his funk stuff, but yeah. Uh-huh. All right, okay. Well, and also there's the tie-in with his collaborator as well. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I was going to say, that conflict you were describing, Dave, it does seem like uh, his work, in fact, not just his work, but his clashes with a collaborator called Steve DeQuisto mm-hmm. seem fairly formative. Now, again, it's hard to verify exactly how much of an impact it had, but uh, DeQuisto sort of says that the tension they felt when they were working together, they, f- they formed this thing called Loose Joints, and it was like a collective of whole, all manner of people from all over the, the shop. Some of them were like singers they'd met at the club, others were more established musicians, and they'd set out to try and write, inverted commas, the Disco White album. But DeQuisto said they would clash over certain approaches to songwriting, and he feels that that clash, though, led to like a kind of growth in Arthur Russell in a few ways it led to a growth in him musically it, learned, learned, it led to like certain aspects of structure entering his work uh, but it also made him a bit less of a perfectionist but also some of their encounters seem to have played a part in him growing more at peace with his sexuality it seems you know as you said with the Ginsburg flirtation it wasn't really overt you know he hadn't come out and then you know early 80s he seemed much more at ease with who he was and you know that what was going on both creatively and personally, then all seems to have bled into each other. Mm-hmm. It's quite interesting because uh, the, the whole the whole being gay thing is is, is I think even his his <laughs> final his final partner. Sorry, three three cis white males just said <laughs> the whole being gay thing on a podcast. 
We need a collection for that. His final part on Tom Lee says that, you know, in the documentary when he talks about um, when he got AIDS is that he was still seeing other people, including women, um, right up until, until he got AIDS, I suppose. Yeah, and he certainly, in the disco scene, he wasn't, like, part of the gay disco scene and going out and, you know, doing that New York gay disco. He was going and watching the bands uh, and going to different gigs every night and they just happened to be at discos. He was, like, really just interested in the music. So, yeah, I guess basically throughout the 80s, he lived in this flat um, with his partner who used to go out and work and then he just stayed at home, recorded shit the whole time. He, you know, had fucking pedals and keyboards uh, and he was really interested in water, the sound of water. He had a big fish tank um, and he, yeah, he just had DAT machines and reel-to-reel tape recorders just full of recordings and demos and he'd, he'd play them to Tom's partner when he when he came home. But he, he wasn't really interested particularly in putting specific projects together for, you know, release or for commercial viability. He had a couple of, uh, like, he had the chance to um, musically direct uh, quite a big theatre work um, and then he just proved to be a nightmare to work with because he was like, mm-hmm. I, 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 want to, I want it to exactly sound like this. And then if they couldn't, you know, recreate it perfectly. And yeah, he lasted one performance and then they were like, no, you, you, can't, you can't work with us. This is a fucking nightmare. And then also, I, th- I like, I mean, he smoked a lot of weed and it seemed that at this point he was maybe getting a little bit paranoid as well. Um, he seemed to be convinced that people were listening and stealing bits of his music. Um, yeah, definitely. That's like he talks. There's a bit in the documentary they talk about Rolling Stones. Yeah, how, he, how he's convinced <laughs> that Rolling Stones have stolen his music. I, I'd reckon you know people were being influenced by him, and you know bands like Talking Heads and stuff like that would have like picked things up from him and taken it to you know a much wider audience. But I think he also was definitely a bit paranoid. The Rolling Stones definitely didn't steal his stuff. I'm pretty sure. Um, <laughs> So people were aware he was like this very charismatic guy, very much not comfortable with, with the limelight. And, you know, he said, like deliberately veered away from commercial success. But what he was like really set on doing was to bridge popular and serious music. He was he wanted to bring together disco, folk, pop and funk together with his experimental and minimalist stuff. He wanted to add a sort of humanity to deep experimental music and he wanted to add experimentalism to pop music um in 1986 he released uh, world of echo which is his only solo non-collaborative album that was you know released by a label Um, which is a great record and that could have been one that I brought to the table but that album very much displays one side of of his uh, sound and his personality it's really interesting experimental sort of dubby art pop huge amounts of space and I mean it's called World of Echo there's a lot of echo on it a lot of Mm -hmm. reverb a lot of delay It's mostly him and his cello, you yeah. know, which is the sort of stuff he's been doing day in, day out. But um, mm-hmm. if that was the only album that he had, 
and and that was his legacy. I think people would say, oh yeah, that was an interesting guy, that was an interesting record. But as it was, you know, it was just this one tiny part of it, and it was the only one that actually got released. Yeah, it's 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 a, it's a really surreal album mm. actually, given what he'd been doing at that point. I mean, Mark, you'd mentioned that twenty four to twenty four album that came out, and I think it was nineteen eighty one. Yeah. confused people at the time as I understand it uh, this weird shift in approach uh, and it, the contem- both the contemporaries and the audiences I don't think were quite ready for it um, albeit you know I think it's quite fondly regarded now um, this World of Echo album is like another total departure it's like really minimalist and ghostly It's got a lot of distorted cello in it, which is quite a strange inclusion, like heavily fuzzed up mm. cello, and, mm-hmm. and then it's but then it mixes that with like whispers with vibrato over them and stuff like that. It's it's a it's an odd concoction. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting record for sure. There's there's a lot of impro- improvisation on it, which I think is really cool. It's I think skeletal is probably the best way of putting it, right? Yeah, it's, it's a good word, yeah. It's yeah. just it's actually the thing which put I actually liked it more after watching the documentary because a lot more of that is used in it. Um, I think yeah. it's an actor. An actor is playing him in performance footage, which is filmed using like VHS cameras as if it's in the eighties, and it's really affecting actually. And when I listened to the record earlier on after seeing the, uh, or later on, sorry, after seeing the, the documentary, I was like, this actually makes more sense to me now. Knowing mm-hmm. him, no, known, known his place in the scene, and knowing what he'd kept, what he'd come from, like you say as well, Chris, coming from this disco mm-hmm. thing to really experimental, uh, but cool stuff. And yeah, the, the way that the use of echo and delay pedals and stuff on it's really cool for sure. It's also, I guess, kind of significant that it was soon after this that he was diagnosed with HIV. Yeah, yeah. So that was nineteen eighty six, and it wasn't long after the release that he was he was diagnosed, and that made that yeah he he lived for another six years. And those were prolific years, even though, you know, by all intents and purposes, his condition was really bad. He, you know, the disease caused throat cancer. Um, He also started losing his cognitive abilities. He got dementia. But he, he worked on different types of music that would then we'd hear later uh, there was going to be a, an electronic pop album for Rough Trade there was going to be another sort of voice and cello song that was going to be released through Philip Glass's uh, record label and he also kept performing live even though when he, you know when he was on his last legs and you can see that in the documentary it's pretty yeah he's, he's not a well man yeah, that um, that voice and cello thing that was going to come out in Philip Glass's label, it, it, a lot of it later came out in a thing called Another Thought. Each step is moving, it's moving me up. Moving, it's moving me up. Every step is moving me up. In 1994 that got released, didn't it? But the, the electronic one was apparently inspired by the likes of people like 808 State and William Orbit. A lot of that material is what 
appeared on the, the collection that you've chosen as well, a lot of the, the, the material from that period. Mm-hmm. But as you mentioned earlier on, like prolific in recording but not prolific in releasing, and he's one of those people that workshopped and workshopped and workshopped music, like did it almost to death, like wouldn't wouldn't let go of it, wouldn't put it out into the ether, just that, that perfectionism that uh, uh, one of his previous collaborators has spoken about did tend to run riot with <laughs> it led to this enormous back catalogue of stuff. What was it? Um, I think it was a guy called Ernie Brooks had said he never, even the stuff he did put out, he never fully finished anything in his career. Mm. Um, when he died, he'd left a thousand tapes. Um, 40 of those were remixes just of one song alone. He's just, I think he's got an estate archivist called Stephen Knutson, and he's got, apparently, he says he's got more than 800 two and a quarter inch audio tapes he's got hundreds of cassette tapes dozens of dat tapes uh, and hundreds more like just sheet music and lyrics he just built up this enormous catalogue of stuff but yet wasn't ever really not so much even that he wasn't seeing it to completion he couldn't he he just couldn't get things to completion he couldn't get them to a point yeah he loved he just wanted to improve them at all points and wanted to experiment Mm -hmm. and yeah in many you know in many ways he was a I don't know, is that is that jazzy or is that the opposite of jazz? Like, I guess jazz is like about capturing the moment, whereas this is about like never capturing the moment. You're always trying to perfect and perfect. I'm not sure. This is how we walk on the moon. This is how we walk on the moon. It's 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 like a common complaint for like certain musicians, especially electronic musicians. I think there's a lot of styles of music that lend themselves to just immediate performance and energy. And even though there's a lot of post production in them, they're fundamentally about the initial performance. Whereas with electronic stuff, you know, so much of it is like tinkering and chopping and reshaping, and mm-hmm. there there is no initial performance. It's all just a sort of accumulated thing, and it can be really easy to fall down, especially. You know, it's eccentric artistic types, people that are maybe isolated and working on things themselves. I mean, I've I've been involved in projects that have taken three, three and a half years to get to completion, and mm-hmm. I'm far from the most neurotic musician you'll meet. And yeah, so you, it's easy. I mean, we did Scott Walker. He's a, he's another example of that. You know, but it's it's easy to see how people, especially when they have their own facilities. And are like masters of their own destiny. When it comes to that, they don't have the pressure of another band around them yeah. pushing something on or whatever. And it's, yeah, it's it's an easy trap to get into for those those kind of personalities. Clearly, clearly, uh, this is where the Prince comparison does come in, right? Because clearly he was he was also, you know, completely bound to that as well. One of my favourite things in the documentary um, is when you see Steve Newton, who owns Audica Records, and he was one that agreed to put out his stuff. Yeah. So I can't really remember the full story, but he came across his music and he just contacted his executor, who's also his ex-partner, Tom Lee, and was like, I would really like to listen to some of the stuff that he's got kicking around. And you actually see his former partner listening to the music whilst he's in like in this garage, which is just full of stuff. And it's just a, such a sweet moment. 
just to yeah. see like this guy clearly loved him, you know, and and he's, he remains executive of his estate and clearly cares very deeply about the guy's music and that it's presented in the correct way. Yeah, exactly. And I think he's been a massive part of how the music is released and compiled, you know, over the last 20 years. The two of them have been really mm-hmm. important and are, are kind of key to the project, I guess, working their way through and, you know, uh, organising and trying to, you know, put it into something that outsiders can approach. Yeah, you see glimpses of, of the archive and all the recording equipment he had and stuff, and it's, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. So, I mean, Dave, I, I, I noticed just a few quotes from other people, because I was obviously being deferential to people that knew more about him than I. Uh, I know Stylist magazine had called him criminally overlooked, um, and there was a Pitchfork quote, which may or may not be over-egging the pudding a little bit, but they described him as a changeling artist whose only parallel might be Miles Davis. Um, but yeah, I mean, despite that sort of kudos, the guy he ultimately died relatively obscure and also relatively poor, didn't he? he wasn't he? Wasn't a rich man? Yeah, no, just died in their one bedroom apartment. Yeah, but his, his subsequent influence has been substantial. The only thing is, some of the things he's influenced for me, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence about. I mean, the likes of Lightspeed Champion and LCD Sound System are quite outspoken on on the impact he had on them. Um, there was a compilation called Red Hot and Arthur Russell that's pretty significant. Uh, it features loads of kind of contemporary or sort of sort of contemporary acts uh, covering his stuff, including people like Robin Hot Chips, of Shan Stevens, Devendra Banhart. Um, obviously, as you said, uh, Matt Wolf made that film Wild Combination, a portrait of Arthur Russell. So there's there has been like a real uptick in activity, mm-hmm. and 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 just the, since the, the turn of the millennium, really, like he's he's he's, a, he's found favour. I think a lot of that's probably due to a certain coming of age of that like dance music generation who started digging backwards for newer, and, yeah, absolutely newer and more interesting samples. That sort of DJ Shadow type crew as they're getting older, like really bin diving and looking for a bit of inspiration in the past. I mean, as I said, I just associate them with that kind of in Glasgow. Uh, the culture of like Optimo and the sub club, this world of like kitsch vinyl collectors, um, there's acts that really appeal to that scene, like Fatima Yamaha. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think acts like that owe a debt uh, to Russell. But I do think it's a sort of sound that is really being buoyed. And an outrage by this kind of like arrival at middle age of that of that audience of those nineties dance music performers and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think just as they've tried to look for more and more inspiration backwards, it, it's brought him more to the fore again. Yep. Can you West sample them? You say you never saw this coming, well you're not alone. Million dollar renovations to a happy home. Yeah, 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 on Life of Pablo. Mm-hmm. So that's the you dead in for a buck. Yeah, Crazy, huh? the the ultimate thief's accolade, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I've chosen Colin out of context because, I mean, it was one of the first ones that was put together by Audica. I also feel that it's maybe the most musically accessible. It's the one that mm-hmm. um, sort of cherry picks the stuff from his you know 85 to 90 although i mean it does take in stuff that was recorded from you know as early as 1973 
right up until his death. Mm-hmm. But mostly it's that period of 85 to 90 where he is thinking a bit more you know, poppy, a bit more upbeat, a bit more electronic. The production's actually really clear, really, really nicely done. Mm-hmm. Um, I would recommend going down and listening to World of Echo. It's mostly unreleased as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's so many like records now that have been released. There's, I think, just last year there was Iowa Dream, 2015. There was Corn, uh, Lord Has Overtaken Me in 2008, and like some of these are like just really beautiful ethereal folk albums. Some of these are mad experimental 1970s one microphone and a cello going mad. Um, you know, it kind of covers all bases. I think Calling Out of Context is maybe the one that has been most influential and the one that appealed to, you know, those listeners you're talking to, Chris, like the optimal crowd and the subclub crowd, mm. because it's got, you know, a couple of big danceable tunes on it. It's also, it's a really interesting album from a structural perspective and from a production perspective, from a lyrical perspective. Yeah, I think it probably is his most accessible. So, uh, yeah, shall we go through it? Yeah, let's take a spin. At me. So it was, um, yeah, it was released in 2004, I believe. So, I mean, it's, yeah, 12 years after his death. Um, Starts off with The Deer in the Forest, part one. So, yeah, just, I mean, this is just an intro, but it's a wee playful intro, kind of, Dissonant, actually, but intriguing. Like little organs playing, but it's not just like DJ Shadow. It's a bit more. It's a little bit goofy. Yeah, yeah, it is goofy. Like it hits occasionally, getting a little bit lush though. Yeah, mm-hmm. goofy actually comes back a few times. Um, I think he was un- unashamedly sort of a dork. <laughs> I was going to say that um, if you listen back to his very first record, uh, the instrumentals, and then the one that comes afterwards... Uh, oh, Another Thought. N- not Another Thought. Um, Tower of Meaning, sorry. All right, um, yeah. Tower of Meaning instrumentals are both available on Spotify as a compilation. You talk about it in the documentary as well. One of the things that was really important to him was the sense of playfulness in the music. You can hear that in everything he does. You know, that kind of goofiness. It was all yeah, about exploring, exploring that kind of that that oeuvre. Totally, and you, even on on this record, it's not polished, but there are parts of it that sound really polished. There are also bits that just sound like he's a kid playing about, you know, playing with an echo machine or whatever. Um, I guess maybe on other records that were meant for commercial release, you'd be like, oh, that's a bit self indulgent. But the fact is, this wasn't necessarily meant for final release. You can forgive the indulgence because we're kind of looking behind the curtain a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, track two, the first proper track, Platform on the Ocean. So yeah, it's got this disco drum machine distorted cello effects sort of overdriven and panning and droning we synthy clicks and then his voice which on this track is actually his register is a bit lower than usual He was annoyed by comparisons to Paul Simon. I actually think his voice what? is way more John Martin. 
I can totally see the Paul Simon uh, comparison, to be honest with you. I don't think it's an insult, but also, I mean, it's it's augmented by the, the inclusion of things like Afrobeat and by some of the percussive work that's done in the background. Um, I also, I mean, for contemporary reference purposes, I think it's his voice here sits somewhere between Interpol and Lou Reed. It's like a little bit lazier than Interpol's, but it's got that sort of tuneful baritone. Yeah, and occasionally, as later on in the album as well, definitely a bit of Tom York as well. Mm. Absolutely. I was going to say, this song reminds me of Radiohead song, like, mm-hmm. for days, man. A couple of a couple of points in this record, but yeah, uh-huh. this song is absolutely imbued with the spirit of crowd rock, man. I mean, it's that trippy, rolling minimalism. L- little bits of like groups like Harmonia, but maybe especially the likes of Can. You can have got a track called Mother Sky from their soundtracks album, and, and it's this is like this could be off it. You know, it's very uh, reminiscent. It's driven by the meat and uh, the meat, <laughs> the beat. Uh, it's driven by the beat and the melody, uh, and the melody is big. But it's, I mean, it's not commercial in any way. And you can see LCD system, LC, LCD sound system, nicking a, a whole load off this. Mm-hmm. Um, Unfortunately, but his, his folk roots are never hidden from his voice either. I, like I really like that fragility from his voice. It's another playful song. Um, I, I, like the production's really cool as well. It's got the, those wee eight oh eight bleeps and, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, then you and me both. I sure I can do whatever you want. And if I try, which is a real sort of moody favourite. Soft Tronica, way more John Martin on the vocals here. I'd say it feels um, um, it feels like a it feels like a, a yacht rock song that's been just <laughs> stripped right back, like a really totally. subverted eighties like pop like soft rock banger. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to say I think this song sets the template just as much for for a bunch of horrible eighties pop as it does for some interest in electro. You can see the sort of origins of this in songs that are quite revered and cool and hip and like Beak and even Portishead and stuff like that. Yeah. But then you can hear you can see the, the you can see how this could have gone the wrong way as well. <laughs> <laughs> and probably did. I think it's interesting you mention that because there's also a possibility that he was listening to that and enjoying it and thought I'm gonna do my own version of it. Mm. I totally because that was I think he was fairly he didn't have any shame in you know enjoying the popular side of life so yeah because there's a couple of really cheesy stuff in this a couple of really cheesy bits in this record but it's yeah. worked really well in the context of the album 
Um, yeah, because they've still got his sort of fragile, moody personality behind them. And, mm-hmm. you know, he's not, you know, fucking going out there with a Hawaiian shirt and a keytar. What is he? <laughs> well, yeah, you never know, actually. I've got a keytar. But, yeah, I really like that track. I love the way the bass kind of tickles about uh, the wee keyboard stabs, lighting it. Make, yeah, definitely make it a bit more yachty. Um, then followed by Calling Out of Context, the title track. Faster, a bit more upbeat, loads of wee cello going all over the place, panned distortion over here and clean cello over there. You know, Psychedelic, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, at one point there's like five or six different things happening around you know your head. This is one where the can influence in the percussion at least is really strong. Mm-hmm. Can and also the Afrobeat stuff as well, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That kind of inverted commas in a big way, world music vibe. Yeah. Um, the vocals are quite far back in the mix in this, but I like mm-hmm. uh, the way he picks his melodies are really unexpected. Really nice guitar, middle eight, lovely wee organ bit, drums kick in louder towards the end. Just on this, you see how sort of free and organic it all is. A big fucking bongo end, which I'm into. Mm-hmm. It's like driven and danceable, and yet it feels like it could fall apart at any moment. Um, and I kind of feel like this song is maybe like a metaphor for him. You know, it's driven and it's got this view and it's kind of unstructured and it's got a powerful melody. Yeah, no, I, I, I really like that track. It's worth me mentioning probably at this point that the percussion and the, the kind of drum programming on this whole album is by a guy called Mustafa Khalik Ahmed, mm. who's, who's done loads of stuff with loads of different artists. He kind of seems like a bit of a session guy. Um, and I- Any of them Prince? <laughs> <laughs> All right, then, arm around you. Overdriven drums, big snare, uh, great synth riff. So it is, man. <laughs> yeah, but then, like, so much music with that uh, synth riff sounds like that now. Like, that's proper minimalist sort of house techno mm-hmm. now. Th- this song really calls to mind that, uh, I mean, I mentioned Fat by Yamaha earlier. There's a Fat by Yamaha track called uh, What's a Girl to Do? Yeah. I can hear big, big doses of it in this track. You can also hear that this, I suspect this was probably an influence on a track that was like a bit of uh, an artist that was a bit of a flash in the pan called Yesayer. Yeah, 
Um, it was a bit of a kind of pitchfork yeah, yeah. thing for a while. Um, had that sort of light pop vibe to it, but the vocal delivery and some of the melodic ideas were, were quite similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, yeah, it's a really big dance song, but then it's also just him doing his wee thing, recording this in his flat, singing about being in love, which I love. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things I said is like this whole record feels like he's inviting us into this world, which is kind of familiar. Yeah, it's a little bit weird, like an alternate reality of like his version of pop music. That's exactly it. And you're hearing melodies that may have influenced things that you've heard and, you know, and stuff like that. But you're going all the way back. And also the production doesn't really sound dated. So you're like, oh, is this the 80s? Is this 90s? Is this 2000s? I don't know. Is this now? I'm not sure. Next up, that's us, Wild Combination. That's morning time Before we got there Which is, I think, his biggest track. Um, mm-hmm. It's certainly, you know, the big hook. Um, it's fucking great. I mean... You definitely definitely get the Paul Simon vibe off this, I think. Um, but like the way it comes in with that intro verse sort of call to arms, um, and then it's like a more powerful sort of Paul Simon driving drums. Fucking love the melody. Beautiful backing vocals. Got the female backing vocals on this, which works so well. Um, it's like gentle and yet huge. Um, and then the the intro reprise just really kicks in as well and then sort of fades out of view I, I, it's become maybe like a hipster indie classic but it's very understated it's a It doesn't wear its melody on its sleeve and it's, you know, the structure once again is, it's not verse, chorus, verse, chorus. It's, oh, what the fuck's going on? Um, but yeah, great, great song. Uh, I want to say here that um, Jennifer Warns is the person that does the backing vocals and that may come up later on. Oh, yes. <laughs> Th- this song's kind of an inflection point for me. Um, it was the first one that was sort of familiar Definitely, um, and it is his, as far as it's certainly his most stream track. I think. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it remind it makes me feel a wee bit the way synthwave makes me feel, and that there's a sort of like quasi ironic appreciation for how bland it is. This is this is the thing where I'm starting to like on on a on a cerebral level. I'm really impressed with this, and it's a very interesting story and a very tragic story. You know that he died so young, and just the manner of his death, and the fact that it attacked his throat, and all these kind of like it's, it's very symbolic. And I think I got caught up a wee bit in that narrative. And like when I actually sit down, this is the first moment in the album that I'm like, I really don't like this musically. And I think that was I was almost disappointed by that because I want to like it. But listening to this, I hear the like the legacy that led to people like Everything But The Girl and all these kind of really watercolour pop bands that were very unremarkable and very beige. And I think there's a, there's definitely a huge audience out there for this. And then there's also a huge audience of people that grew up on really dynamic, intense acid and techno and all this kind of stuff and have then grown to appreciate much subtler things as they've got older. But those subtler things to me are much more dilute and there's something there's something really meek about this song that 
I can understand why it's big. I mean, that there's there's entire movements of this stuff, and not not least of all synthwave that are big. But it's at this point that I'm like, I feel there's like a hint of irony, and then also a hint of middle agedness to this album that it 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 doesn't make me hate it. It it just doesn't make me. It doesn't elicit any really strong feelings because I started to get over the spell of like the mystique and the, the nostalgia and the and the tragedy and just be a little bit. This is this is kind of boring. Um, and this this was honestly that first moment, which sounds really cruel to say. I don't mean that. I don't mean to demean this entire story or the person. Like it's just my fucking opinion. Who cares? But yeah, this was definitely the point where I was like, "Ugh, yuck." Um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> well, we had to <laughs> piss in the parade uh, sooner or later. Um, no, I mean, I just I fucking love this song. I think it's like really optimistic. I think the production and maybe the the vocals and stuff like that are meek but that's you know it was never produced or intended for release at this point so the knowledge that it is still a slightly skeletal song and all that background context makes me like it even more rather than less i'd say yeah i just think it's a really fucking joyous piece of music next make one two Funky guy. Yeah, it feels more traditional, like a, like a traditional song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, much more powerful vocals as well. Yeah. Yeah, more angular, um, little trumpet flourishes and stuff are mm-hmm. kind of a bit more colourful. Yeah, it's like much more disco sort of vibes. Um, still the cello in there. Yeah, I like it. I mean, when it kicks in, it's got proper groove, little synth breakdowns everywhere. I, yeah, nice wee, wee track. Uh, then Hope On Down. I mean, he's just fucking about here. Um, yeah. but it's got such a strong beat to it and the melody ties it together there's, uh, there's wee bits in it with like a dirty synth sort of comes in quite stabby mm-hmm. um, it sounds like Dex almost I, th- I think that's actually just the way he's kind of modulating. You know, he's he's turning up white noise filters and modulating pretty in a pretty extreme way on whatever like synths and outboard he's he's going through. But I mean, musically, it's total music. It's just it's back to that feeling that I got on that sort of well combination. It becomes like, oh, this is very fucking beige. Not even beige. This is like this is like fun. This is this is sort of like this is eggshell. There's something very watery and tedious to it, and it it does offset nicely when he does those really extreme filters. That's definitely an interesting idea in the context of that, but melodically and yeah, I just at this point I'm like really sort of I feel really conflicted about this. Uh, next up is get around to it. To the boy, if you can get around to it. Show me what the girl does 
this is maybe my favourite on the record. I think it's a total banger, big bass. It's got this weird, sort of naive vocal. I love the production, I love the beat, I love the melody, I love the lyrics, I love the structure. It kind of starts with a chorus rather than, yeah, and then and plays about, and the verse is like a little breakdown. Yeah, I really like this song. This, I'd be curious, because as we said, the, the, this is taken from all across that period of his career from like 73 onwards, and I don't know when this lies chronologically, mm-hmm. but Mark made the point, like, is he laying the groundwork for some pop, or is he reflecting some of the pop he was quite enjoying? This really, it reminded me of Bronski beat. <laughs> um, and, yeah. and obviously, a, a, a much more... Uh, n- not nearly as sort of a, a, a direct or hard hitting, but I'm sure if you get into some Bronski beat album tracks, uh, it, it gets pretty close to this kind of stuff. It, it was really reminiscent of that era and that style. I think the see the way this is mixed. It actually, rem- it actually gives me the feeling of he's standing outside the club singing the song which has been played inside the club. <laughs> <laughs> it's like his voice is really. It's like, I think this is probably where his voice is the loudest on on the whole record. It's like it's like so high in the mix. Yeah. Yeah, probably. Um, then I Like You, which is a big proper 80s sort of indie pop song. <laughs> Fucking loads of percussion. It's a bit more hip hop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, like is, the, there is more hip hop. The saturated drums. Yeah. 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 Um, and then he's fucking around with synths and noises again. Uh, I mean, Dave, you realise this is a song that basically created LCD sound system. I know, I've got to deal with that, but you know, <laughs> it's an albatross on my back. Uh, you can make me feel bad. This is maybe one that's tied to his World of Echo stuff most, like big drones and cellos, sort of beautiful melodramatic melody. It's hidden and affected. Um, I mean, it's only a minute and a half, but it's really nice. It's a cute song. Yeah. It's very emotive, mm-hmm. very sweet. Um, You know, the one thing about this song, I've not really dug into like the various remixes and stuff that are kicking about, but the melody in this song is so strong. Yeah, yeah, it totally is, isn't it's it? It's so short, but it's the strongest melody in the album, I think, that it would lend itself to a really big remix. I don't know if there's one kicking mm-hmm. around out there, but this song fleshed out with drums and progression and stuff, I think it's it's lovely, actually. It's just the nicest yeah. tune. Chris, do it. Oh yeah, make it, make it happen. <laughs> make Chris. it, make it happen. And then the final song, calling all kids. And this, yeah, it kind of feels a bit like everything from the record, all 
all at once. Um, big poppy beats, glitchy percussion. The vocals are so Tom York. Yeah, Kid A all over it, man. All over the place. <laughs> this is like 15 years before Kid A. It builds, it builds slowly. But like this could, I mean, this could 100% be released by Warp like two years ago. Um, <laughs> That's got a lot of groove to that song. I, I like the groove of that song. Yeah, like it grooves and then there's magic just going on. Uh, yeah, I really like it. Yeah, so for me, that's one part of Arthur Russell that I think is maybe the most accessible for people. Um, but I would recommend diving down and, and finding your own sort of bits that you like. Because if you're like Chris and you don't like this, you may well... Um, like some something else that he liked, you might like the the wee folk songs that he did in the early seventies, or you might like his solo cello stuff, or you might like his disco stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Mark, do you think it was all right? Uh, I enjoy the story of this man's uh, musical career than than more than I enjoy the music on this record. It's got a lot of highlights for me though. Uh, mm-hmm. I think he fits the category and fits the bill for this podcast like unbelievably well. And you can clearly hear his influence on many artists, and yeah. I think I think that's worth I think worth having in here, worth worth talking about. And I don't know if I would listen to this album in full again, but there's parts of it that I probably would listen to again for sure. Yeah, it's tough for me because I don't think this is a perfect album, but also it was never meant to be an album, and it's mm. been put together by you know his partner and a guy from a record label who are sifting through demos and stuff like that, and it makes you just want to go alright if somebody just fucking sat you down in 1989 and said right fucking put together a record then what could he have produced but there's a fucking treasure trove of you know hundreds and hundreds of stuff that is in there and maybe the best thing to do is like go through and listen to it all and cherry pick your favourite bit and make your own album out of it in fairness Rough Trade Records did sit him down in 1987 and say Go, go and fucking do an album <laughs> And then he took like four plus years And it never really happened Yeah, yeah, that's true actually I, I mean, I actually <laughs> What Mark said really sums it up for me as well um, This guy's an absolute perfect fit For the remit of the podcast In terms of he's just definitely unsung He's definitely influential It's a fascinating and compelling backstory It's got tragedy in it It's got innovation and bravery And all kinds of like really it incredibly compelling different aspects yet the music is often so tepid that that it just it's simply a matter of taste I guess it just doesn't speak to anything in me it's not dynamic it's not hooky it's just there and it 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 just happens and that that's fine I I don't I've not acquired that sort of esoteric or kind of post ironic appreciation for this stuff yet maybe it will, I mean I'm 40 so maybe it will happen in like yeah it's gonna happen soon it's got to happen sooner or it's not going to happen at all but yeah I just I can't musically particularly enjoy it whilst cerebrally and you know emotionally even I um, I find it very compelling so I mean in terms of like would I vote it into the discography I would I would firmly play the sitting on the fence card uh, even though I would probably secretly be hoping that other folk would vote it in for me mm-hmm. <laughs> this is probably the wrong time to bring this up but one of the things that I found that listening to this record is something that I often find about posthumous records and there's that they just obviously they obviously lack cohesion. Yeah. And I find that frustrating a lot of the time and in places I try And I, I guess like maybe, you know, that's a 
good thing to go with. If his legacy is anything, that frustration is as you know close to his personality True. and his creative output as anything. Because you know, that's a good point. He seemed like a fucking frustrating person. <laughs> yeah, that's you a good know, point. a genius, a but point. a frustrating genius. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, fair play. All right. Well, uh, thanks for listening. Um, we should uh, do the nexus now. A complicated series of connections between different things. Is it my turn? Yeah. And who are we doing, Christopher? Who chose it? The next is this week was chosen by Johnny K. Shiv on a build, was it Instagram yep, I think on Instagram one. um and he chose the 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 what are they called Mercurial uh, pub, <laughs> pub rock they 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 have their own category what is that again uh it's it's not Cockney rock, rock. Oh, Cockney rock Rockney <laughs> Rockney that's yeah, what that's it was they called themselves Rockney Um, yeah, Chaz and Dave, courtesy Johnny Keshev on Insta. All right, exciting. So Arthur Russell, as mentioned, uh, when he first moved to New York, he uh, made friends with and actually had a wee relationship with Allen Ginsberg. Um, Allen Ginsberg, the poet, writer, uh, drug decriminalisation advocate, political, philosophical, kind of everything, um great hair as well yep. um, of the many things that Allen Ginsberg was involved in uh, one of the most interesting was the, it was a book called The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia and it was the, he basically alleged that uh, the CIA were involved in drug, drug cra- uh, trafficking throughout Burma, Thailand and Laos and I mean, I guess in the in America in the seventies, people were finding out a lot about the CIA, and that was a big part of it. Uh, that book came out with um, a, a guy called Alfred W. McCoy. He was a historian, educator. In fact, he's still alive. Specialized in stuff like Asian history and CIA and and, and stuff like that. Um, he in two thousand and seven appeared in a documentary, Taxi to the Dark Side, the Afghan one. Yeah, so that was about uh, the killing of an Afghan taxi driver who was beaten to death by American soldiers um, and then sort of held in extrajudicial detention. Yeah, it was actually, I think it was shown on the BBC as part of Storyville. It was the first time I watched it. Uh, It was directed by Alex Gibney, who has done a lot of interesting documentaries. I think his most recent one was that Vladimir Putin one, Citizen K. Um, He's done... Enron, the smartest guys in the room, I think was the first one I I saw by him. Uh, oh, fuck, he did the Going Clear as well, didn't he? The Scientology one. Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah, he's done a lot of shit. Um, no, not, not shit in the bad sense, but shit in the cool sense. Oh yeah, actual interesting shit. He was a series producer for uh, The Blues, a PBS television series, one of which uh, the episodes was directed by Vim Vendors. Uh, Wim Wenders, German filmmaker, playwright, 
etc etc directed two of my favourite films Paris Texas and Wings of Desire I mean he's a fairly legendary director and uh, when was it fairly recently there was a big release of uh, the music of Vim Vender and it was artists that had appeared on his stuff and also been influenced by them uh, and that included the aforementioned Radiohead uh, appeared on this uh, record um, in 2016 Tom York of Radiohead headlined uh, the Block Festival uh, also appearing on that block lineup in 2016 was the techno DJ and former world snooker champion Steve Davis. I think have we mentioned this before? Steve Davis becoming a techno DJ and he's got props before for being such a badass DJ. He's apparently really good. Yeah, yeah. No, I saw him at doing the rabbit hole and he was fucking class. Um, you know, now he's got into techno DJing and blah blah blah. Uh, that was not his first foray into music because in 1986 he appeared on Snooker Loopy, uh, <laughs> a, a novelty record which hit the top 10, I believe, with Chaz and Dave. And Dennis Taylor. Oh yeah, all the snooker legends were on it. That's a belter. All right, somebody go. Uh, Mark, you want to take a turn? I've got a pretty lengthy one. Yeah, uh, Alan. By the way, How by Alan Ginsberg is one of my favourite poems of all time, uh, and I fucking love that that writer. He's amazing. Um, so yeah, he's not in my nexus, but I'm glad that we've spoken a little bit about him. Um, so let us begin my nexus and the song that's us. Wild, wild combination. Uh, the female backing vocals are. Provided by Jennifer Warnes, um, who is a Grammy award-winning and Oscar award-winning singer of "I've Had the Time of My Life," the duet mm-hmm. with Bill Medley, which features in the song "Dirty Dancing." years before she won that Grammy and the Oscar she also won a Grammy and an Oscar for her duet with Joe Cocker on the song Up Where We Belong which was in the film An, Officer, wow. an Officer and a Gentleman. Uh, the, the story behind that, that that song is actually quite fascinating. So the director, Taylor Hackford, didn't have enough money to get a song made for the film. Uh, and Warner Brothers Records really wanted to have a film to go along with the song. And uh, a manager there suggested Warns, because uh, it was a client of his. And he, he originally did not want to go with her because she thought she was too, uh, too clean and too safe. She wanted to have, uh, he wanted to have somebody who was like Richard Gere doing a jet with somebody like Deborah Winger, who are both in the film. Um, eventually, she did set with Warns, and Warns suggested Joe Cocker because she grew up like idolising him because of the way he was at Woodstock and all that, and she was like a really big fan. Uh, she convinced him to do it, but he didn't want to do it. He actually hated the song after recording it. Uh, they did only two takes of it in the studio together, and one of those is what ended up on the on the record. Um, <laughs> Anyway, Joe Cocker 
pretty famous musician, right? Um, his live band for many years featured the guitar player Albert Lee, um, who's also played by a bunch of people including the Everly Brothers, Richie Blackmore, John Lord, Amy Lou Harris, Bill Wyman, The Clapton. I saw Albert Lee live in Dornoch once, actually. Nice. Um, Jerry Lee Lewis and just loads and loads of people. Um, he actually first came to prominence in the band Head, Hands and Feet, who are actually apparently reasonably well known in the 70s. They were on the Old Grey Whistle Test quite a lot and all that. I couldn't name a song by them. But their bass player was Chaz Hodges from Chaz and Dave. Nailed it. So here you go. So a funny thing happened on my way to the Nexus, um, which was that I was in the middle of arranging like quite a a long circuitous route to try and get to somewhere that I wanted to get to, and actually accidentally stumbled across a really really good shortcut. So I was in the midst of like navigating from Arthur Russell through uh, David Byrne onto like the Queen Elizabeth Theatre and Queen Elizabeth the Second, and then onto Queen Elizabeth the First and all this kind of shit. And actually then I stumbled across the fact that Remember earlier on I said Arthur Russell was born on May 21st mm-hmm. May 21st Is the anniversary Of the first ever female transatlantic flight By Amelia Earhart In 1932 Wow Right So that's really that's really useful for me Because <laughs> Amelia Earhart Is part of a very very interesting Little uh, conspiracy Horror sort of She was on Snooker Loopy with Chaz and Dave <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, Dennis Taylor uh, Yeah, uh, in 1937 uh, Before Amelia Earhart went missing In the Pacific Ocean She scribbled a word into her diary Croatoan C-R-O-A-T-O-A-N Right Now the word Croatoan was also uttered By Edgar Allan Poe As he was dying Right The word Croatoan was scratched into the deathbed Of the horror writer uh, Ambrose Bierce Right. The word Croatoan was scraped into the prison wall of, I think he was a stagecoach robber called Black Bart, really famous figure in the Old West. Um, the word Croatoan was written on the last page of an abandoned ship that had run aground off the coast of North Carolina. Right. The word Croatoan is quite, it's quite significant. Um, if you've ever watched the TV series American Horror Story, you may recognise that there's an episode that's kind of based around this. Um, but the story is really fascinating. So, um, in 1590, uh, a man called John White returned to Roanoke Island off the coast of the USA. Um, he had been sent there by uh, well, effectively Queen Elizabeth um, But well, Sir Walter Raleigh And a bunch of people they'd, they'd been sent out to try and sort of Form little communities And he was part of a group That settled on a certain part of land In Roanoke Island okay? And then he was forced Because of um, one particular hostile local group He was forced to go back to England To try and get help Unfortunately he got back to England Just as there was a war with Spain going on and he ended up delayed for three full years. Like the the extended version of this story is really interesting because it depi- describes his anguish waiting to get back because he'd left his daughter and his newly born granddaughter in that uh, community. It took him three years to get back there, and he finally got back, and there was nobody about. There were also no. They they told the settlers if you get into crisis, draw a crucifix, like scratch a crucifix into the trees. Because we'll understand that it's a sign You know, they had these systems for trying to signal mm-hmm. each other There were no crucifixes scratched in the trees But just off the shore They found a tree, which you can still see to this day It's in some exhibition somewhere um, Which has C-R-O scraped into it Like the bark's all scraped off And then that's engraved into it And then they got up to where the settlement had been And they find another tree with the full word 
Croatoan scratched into it. Okay, now 115 people, men, women and children, had all gone missing. They were never found again. There was no sign of them. And in effect, John White ended up being the only survivor from the, the, the entire settlement. Um, now, Croatoans, I believe, were... Uh, they were they were a local Native American tribe as well, and uh, but they were they were quite benevolent. They were they were quite welcoming of of the settlers in the early days, and I think there was like an island at the time was refer- referred to as Croatoan. But for some reason, these these settlers were never found again. There is some historic evidence though of genetic uh, traces in descendants of the Croatoan people. It might suggest that the settlers were actually taken to the community and sort of absorbed into the community, maybe passed away. But then there's loads of other bits of evidence that seem to point, or loads of other bits of supposed evidence that seem to point uh, the other way. And so to this day, there's loads of chat of like a famine, cannibalism, uh, a dreadful storm, um, massacres by Spain, clearly. Um, and as I say, there's also the flip of that, which is that they eventually got to safety and were absorbed into this particular local community. And I suppose their ancestors are still there. Um, if you've ever seen the series Supernatural, which is kind of like an urban legends, uh, American sort of fantasy series, season two of that, uh, the ninth episode was called Croatoan and was like a wee bit of a riff on this. Uh, episode 13 of that same series was called Houses of the Holy. Houses of the Holy, what the episode made reference to and obviously got its name from Led Zeppelin's album and song. And in 1979 at Nebworth, uh, Chaz and Dave opened for Led Zeppelin. Nice. What a show that would be. Mm, Belton, huh? Uh, All right. Well, thanks very much for listening, talking about Arthur Russell. Uh, I'm away for a couple of weeks now. You are. So what are you doing next? Uh, Vicky's coming in. She's taking your seat. We gave her uh, free reign and Vicky, to my delight, uh, wants to do an album by the band Do Makes They Think, which is a band that, again, you know, they've been on that list way back when we conceived of this show. They were probably in my first, you know, my very, very first sketches in the back of a napkin. I don't envy Vicky having to choose what album and as yet she hasn't. I think she's still quite conflicted about it and I can totally get with that and that'll probably end up being a big part of the show in all honesty, because they have some really good stuff, and pretty much everything they've done, I, I would argue, is unsung. But we'll see what she brings to the table, see if we maybe disagree about which which record, and Mark, you might just hate it, full stop. Always possible. Um, but yeah, uh, we'll be nexusing that to... <laughs> Marty Pello. Courtesy, <laughs> courtesy of our listener, Colin O'Hara. I'll, I'll be listening to that then. Thanks, Colin. Cheers, Colin. Marty Pello. To do makes you think Fucking hell <laughs> Fucking class Okie dokie Guys uh, David Travel safe Don't know what you're getting up to But Just uh, Just being away <laughs> Just having that for us. Us, eh? <laughs> Yeah just I, just I just need a breather guys Fucking hell <laughs> <laughs> Right Mark Well I'll see you next week I'll see you next week uh, And Dave May you smell glorious Forever Alright guys Thanks a lot <laughs> Bye, Bye.